Coming up, discover how music supervisors select tunes that appear in spooky TV shows, movies, and even commercials. Welcome to the show. I'm Philip. On the Haunted Traction Network podcast, we bring the haunt industry to you every weekday. We have news, education, and on-location coverage from Halloween experiences around the world. Whether you're a professional or enthusiast, each episode helps you better prepare for Halloween. Outside of this podcast, we have videos, education, and even events. Links to everything are in the show notes. Okay, yesterday we played Composers of the Apocalypse from Midsummer Scream's main stage. And today, we're continuing the music theme with another panel from Midsummer Scream. We're playing the first 30 minutes of spooky music in visual media, which took place on the second stage this past Saturday, July 30th. For Haunters especially, this panel provides insights that you can apply when you're selecting media for your haunt. Welcome to Midsummer Scream. Spooky music is everywhere. In television shows, movies, and even commercials. How do music supervisors choose the right tune for a soundtrack? Let's find out. Please welcome to the stage songwriter and co-founder of Lovecraft, Evan Kid Bogart, a.k.a. Lil Punkin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the monster, no wait, spooky music panel. <laughs> um, this is really exciting. This is our first uh, panel at uh, Midsummer Scream. We're a huge fans. We've been coming here for years and uh, we're excited to do this. So welcome to the spooky music and visual media panel, um, something we know a bit about. Um, our first panelist today is a Southern California native uh, and the founder of her own music supervision company, Rat Dance Party, serving up spooky tunes for TV, film, podcast, documentaries, and more. She has, already, she has also represented numerous songwriters, producers, and music creators, helping them get their deadly bops placed in all sorts of media, a staunch advocate for women in music, supervision, and visual media, and even teaches her craft to the next generation. Please welcome to the Midsummer Scream stage, the incredible Jennifer Smith. Our next panelist, our next panelist has been possessing our hearts and minds and ears for almost 20 years, working on over 120 TV shows, films, soundtracks, advertisements, and more. Uh, working with songwriters, producers, artists, composers, and a slew of music creators. Her remarkable career in music supervision has had her summoning songs for NBC Universal, including Bravo, Sci-Fi Channel, and E, and for Lionsgate Pictures. She's worked on projects and campaigns with the likes of Janelle Monet, Fits in the Tantrums, Rob Zombie, and our upcoming third panelist, MNDR, to name a ferocious few. Please give a midsummer scream welcome to the wonderful Rebecca Ranks. Our final girl, or I mean panelist, is a ridiculously talented songwriter, music producer, recording artist, musician, creative executive, and just all around superstar. She fucking slays. She launched onto the popular music scene with Mark Ronson and has since collaborated with everyone from Flume to Pussy Riot to Duran Duran and everyone in between. Most importantly, she is co-founder and original spooky freak for your favorite Halloween and spooky music collective, Lovecraft. She has an encyclopedic knowledge of all things 
films, horror, movies, music, and more. Better known to the paranormal and the freaks that come out at night as deep cuts, and to the living as the incomparable MNDR, please welcome to the Midsummer Scream stage, MNDR. Hi. Hey. <laughs> okay, let's start with a question for everyone up here, okay? okay. Um, for those that don't really understand what music supervision is, what is it? Where does the role sit in the process of spookifying our favorite movies, shows, and more? R Rebecca, I'll start with you, and we'll go down the line. Um, depending on the project and the people involved, it is ideally and hopefully it would start at the very genesis of um, the the creating the palette for the show, the film, the project itself. In an ideal world, you'd be working with someone like a Rob Zombie, who has a very specific aesthetic to begin with, and you'd be helping hone his vision from before the project even starts to film, all the way through to the very end through post-production. I got nothing to add to that. <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. Um, I mean, has anybody here ever watched a movie or a TV show without music in it, like at any point? I will tell you. Yeah, if you, it's if very you, weird. If you have, it's, it's super weird. It's, it's terrible. Weird. Like it's, it's awful. Still You're weird like, in my what? Job. What is this? It's it's crazy how much music plays such a part in what we what we watch. You know, and it and. Um, sometimes when people are like scared and they're watching a horror movie, they're like, just mute it, you know? Like, cause it's actually less scary when it's muted, you know? I find that interesting. Um, Jennifer, you've championed both music creators trying to get their music heard on TV shows and in films, and you represented shows looking for music. How is that process different? Well, first of all, um, the process is very different. When I worked with creators, which ironically is also MNDR, I would pitch their music to the creative of a show. So I was doing the opposite side of my job. And then I missed working with creators, with film and TV and audio creators. So I went back on the other side. And now I'm on this job is I'm creating a sonic vision that's in line with the filmmaker, the network, the executive. So there's a lot of skill sets that go back and forth, but also it's very different because you have a very different goal depending on what the job is. When you're representing an artist, you want to make sure the music's in line, it's papered properly, it's paid properly. Um, there's different types of guidelines versus on this side, the guidelines are very different because, for example, if you're working in a horror film and they say, you know, we have the scene and we want X, Y, Z, and you're like, okay, that could work, or this, you're going to their vision versus saying, I represent this artist, I want this song in this project. So it's just different creative needs on both sides, but they're both, they're both fun, different, and intersect really well. Would you guide like having been on both sides, right? Is there some, is there one way that you would guide either like the, the network to understand music creators better or music creators to understand what a studio or network might be looking for? I think education's important and I think you need to educate and I do educate my filmmakers, especially working with a lot of independent filmmakers, especially in the horror side. Um, just them understanding the process of music and also on the network side as well, as well as educating musicians and artists. Education's important. You need to understand what this means for your art, what this means money-wise, how, how stuff is made, how is music created, what goes into it, and then you educate the musicians or the artists 
How are projects made? How is it funded? How is it distributed? All the different things that go into that one little placement. How is the whole cake made? And how is it made after continue baking if it's a film or a TV show as well? How many people it takes to make one placement happen? It takes a and lot. And get over the finish line. Yes, it's a, it's a city. It's not a village. It's yeah. a city. Do you ever like uh, disagree with... I mean, you don't have to say who, but I'm just saying, like, <laughs> like, do you ever disagree with, like, you're like, this would work amazing for this scene, and then, like, this is someone else you, who's part of that line is, like, it doesn't, and you're like, you're All wrong. the time, because people always think, like, everyone who enjoys music has an opinion. It's a universal thing that people have opinion about. You know, I don't, uh, I'm not a grip. I'm not a, you know, I'm not working production. I couldn't just show up and go, like, I can do what the grip does. But people show up all the time and say that they can do a version of what one of us does. All the time. All the time. You know, pe people are music experts. I could yeah. do your job, but I don't walk up and say, you know what? For this camera frame, I think you should do X, Y, Z and use this lens. Yeah. So yes, my PC line is I uh, keep to the integrity of the vision of the filmmaker, but yes, I always disagree. <laughs> I love that. It's your job to have an opinion. Yeah. Well, so you work for you work for Cobalt, which is a which is a huge publishing administration company, and they represent for people who don't know they represent hundreds of songwriters and thousands of songs. Um, I'm actually signed to Cobalt, so uh, you know. But um, but now you have your own company, Rat Dance Party. Tell us about Rat Dance Party. What is it? So Rat Dance Party is a full service um, music supervision company. So I work with filmmakers. Uh, creators, um, that could be also in podcast creators as well, to help them find their sonic sound from creation through execution. Um, because education is important to me, I also offer education programs to musicians. Since coming from Cobalt, it's really important to educate people. But I do not represent music. I don't pitch music anymore. That is a past life. Um, where I sit is in the creative process of filmmaking, TV, uh, podcasts. But I think education is important. So I also have that branch as well. Do you miss pitching music? No. <laughs> <laughs> is that something? So, like, that's challenging, obviously. It's challenging. Um, also, just uh, not only is it challenging, but uh, it's not as creative. I, I am a storyteller. And I'm a storyteller at heart. And when you pitch music, it's a different type of storytelling and a different type of thing. But for me as a storyteller, I, this, this is my home to, to help tell the sonic story with projects. Cool. I mean, like you've worked on like Netflix's Deadly Illusions, CBS Why Women Kill, and the film adaption of uh, Bad, Kid Go Bad Kids Go to Hell. I, I see a trend. There's like very spooky titles. Um, do they just find you? I mean, I seriously, I know they aren't all horror, and, um, but do you prefer working on shows with an edge? Yeah, it's kind of, it's, I guess it's interesting. Uh, I don't consider myself cool in any sort of way, but whenever I go to meetings, they're like, you're kind of edgy, and I was like, I don't know what that means. But I think it's just the type of uh, stories that I'm attracted to and the type of filmmakers that, um, that are attracted to me is we have an understanding of something that's a little edgier, whatever that means, I guess. Um, I wouldn't be the type of person you would hire on a Grey's Anatomy. Um, I, I'd hire you, Jen. Well, thanks, Rebecca. I, I would, would do a good job, see a but it's Grey's not really, uh, I guess. If you had to pick between two people, they wouldn't pick me, but that's okay. 
Um, I, I guess it's just that because those filmmakers have a certain point of view and I think I understand that point of view a little bit more than some other points of view. Is that like where your musical tastes lie? Well, uh, fun fact about music supervision, your taste does not matter. It 100% does not matter. Uh, I work on projects that are not my personal taste and that's okay. But uh, yeah, I, I would say probably storytelling taste more than sonic taste and character taste. Do you, would you, do you, is that for you too? I think your taste matters. <laughs> I think that uh, it's really what, maybe what you, what you are actually saying is that you have to have the ability to have range because your personal decision making is not really the thing That's that exactly matters. That's exactly what I was trying to say. Thank is, you, Rebecca. Yeah. I'm so you take yourself interpolate, out of it. <laughs> interpreting. You, you take yourself out of it. You become a conduit for the, between the creator and the project. Uh, I had a boss once that equated it to you're painting someone else's house. Like, you know, you're not there to really enforce your opinion on things. You're there to give options and outlets for someone's creative vision. You know, like I'm not... To mention Rob Zombie again, I'm not going to show up and tell Rob Zombie what to do, but I can also go. Okay, that's a cool direction. What about if we try to do? <laughs> what if we try to do it this way? Or what if we invite like you know this sort of tone here or there? And you can add to somebody's vision, but hopefully somebody already you know they know what they're looking for. Sometimes people don't. Cool. Um, Jennifer, I'm so excited to talk to you about this new project that you're you're even producing. It's called Hollows Bend. Um, and it's coming out in September, right? Yep, September. I am such a fan of where people's imaginations take them. Um, as a songwriter myself, I'm constantly storytelling in my mind as I'm writing. Um, and some of my favorite movies and shows have been most impactful from what you don't see. Um, but you've taken this to another level, or should I say like throwback to a spookiness of yesteryear. Um, I love this. Tell us everything about Hollows Bend, because I feel like people need to know, and I want to hear it from you. Okay. So Hollows Bend, it's called Hollows Bend the Radio Play, and I'm calling it a radio play, not a podcast. So, you know, a little history lesson in audio is when War of the Worlds was put on the radio and turned it on, people thought it was actually happening. So there is something beautiful in storytelling with sound that has to do with radio plays. So I was working with these two young writers and they had a script and I was like, you know, this would be really interesting in the sonic space. So I helped develop them out the script into, it's gonna be a 90 minute radio play. They'll be on all streaming platforms for free <laughs> in September. And it's really fun. Um, it's about a spirit named Andres who is uh, kind of stuck in this small town, we'll say, you know, middle America, East Coast type of thing. And all of a sudden, he is able to possess the new girl in town where things are changing in the town. And he has to make a decision, oh my God, I can get out of purgatory or can I help this ragtag group of children, of teenagers, solve the mystery of what's going on in the town. We have possessions, we have evil, we have deciding what's good and evil. We have the non-traditional type of, of characters in there where they're traditional, kind of like the John Hughes like archetype, but it's modern. And it's really fun, and the soundscapes are, were really, really fun to do to create spirit realms and what does that mean and kind of playing with breaking the audio wall as a character. How do you do that? 
Oh, you you want to no, know? No, it's okay. It's secret. Secret sauce. It's it's a uh, so uh, fun story. I have pet rodents, obviously. Rat dance party. So I do actually have pet rats. Um, on my Instagram, my rat Liberty was very upset. She couldn't come today, even though she was wearing her her. Uh, Vampire cape, known as Racula cape. She was really good. Racula very, is amazing. Yes, she was oh, very man. upset. Very upset about it. Um, so rodents like to make noises, obviously, between the wheel and the chattering and everything. So I started recording all those little things, and I rescued this little pet mouse from a trash can, and I call her my nemesis because every time I'm on the phone, she just gets in this wheel and just like it's like ee for hours so I recorded it and then I warped it and it's going to be in my different sonic scapes <laughs> so I just was like okay here's a rat chattering what can I do with this and everything so um, what's great about just like music and audio is it's such an amazing storytelling mechanism and with audio you don't need permission to create something if you have an idea of a story or, you know, whether it's a horror thing or whatever, thriller, those are the best, I think the best in the audio world because you can just really get in and storytell. Just do it. Honestly, it's, it's free to put online. Like, it's free. So don't, don't let anyone ask, you know, don't say, oh, I need to get permission from a studio or an audio platform. Just do it because I'm 100% independent and I'm doing it and putting it up. Um, we have great actors in there as well. Yeah, James who, who's Marsters. In it, who's in it other than rats? Uh, well, besides besides the rodents that are kind of like the sonic sound, um, we have James Marsters who played Spike from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. We have Paul Johansson from One Tree Hill. He plays a villain. Surprise. Um, <laughs> we have a lot of upcoming talent. We have JLC. We have George Eads, so the actor from 13 Reasons Why and, oh, I forget where the other one's from. My bad. Um, but yeah, and a lot of really amazing upcoming talent, I believe, in giving people a new voice a chance. And there's a lot of amazing talent out there. So I just logged into it and just went from there, including some actors that are known in the audio space that just were like, yeah, I'll help you out. It's fine. I got nothing to do. And I was like, okay, thanks. <laughs> Does it... I mean, does music play into it? In oh, yes. Okay. Music definitely plays into it. Um, no, I am not ripping off Stranger Things. This has been in the works before Stranger Things. Also, newsflash, any children out there, the 80s existed before Stranger Things. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just going to say this. Many things were inspired Hot by take. the 80s. <laughs> yes, exactly. Many things were inspired by the 80s. So I'm already preparing for people calling it a Stranger Things ripoff, and I'm just like rolling my eyes already. Um, so it's a modern sonic 80s space that I'm also putting in, um, obviously, elements of horror. So whether that is sounds, um, wind, silence, crunching, all the things we love in a good horror film that kind of give you anticipation and texture that add on to the music. So the music's not literal. Obviously, there is some literal uses, but it's more of an abstract think of, you know, just like art, just like the genre we love. It's magical. It's not always like A, B, C, D. There's so many beautiful things you can do in the thr horror thriller space with sound and music. That's amazing. Um, Rebecca, you've obviously been killing the game for years. Um, yeah, she has. And... Um, You've, you've worked for 
film companies, TV companies, on behalf of so many different types of media. Um, how do you know when you've matched the perfect song to a scene? Like, how do you know? Like, when do you know? Do you ever know? Um, maybe when someone else sees it that isn't as close to it as you are and gets the intended feeling. Because really, at the end of the day, whether it's with score or putting a song in, um, creating, like Jen was talking about, something with just a texture or um, born out of tones or sound effects, you're attempting to reach an end goal of emotion, whatever it is. You're seeking to find, like, people need to understand that I want this to be, you know, there's levity here, they should laugh, or this is tense, something is about to happen, we want to give them that sense of anticipation. So, you know, we were talking earlier about how you see things with no music and it's so strange. In, in our kind of role, you also see things with lots of different tones underneath it to try to find the right tone or you see something with different, you know, how uh, like a singer-songwriter song is going to be very different in a scene than something that's hard rock or metal or whatever. So like, you're going to get a different reaction from an audience from it. So I, you know, there's so many ways that music and media can be strangely be successful with different music under it to achieve a different emotion. But when it really is successful is when someone who's maybe seeing it for the first time or has not lived and breathed the project like you have, sees it and is affected by it and is affected in the way that it is intended by the creator. Do, do you, like, you've obviously both worked on spooky, spooky things and also lots of non-spooky things. Um, do you have to take a different approach to spooky visual media? Like, how do you know when something should just be score or, like, uh, when to inject something that feels... Like, how do you know how, do you know how to... Like, which one to pick? Like, I, I don't know. It just feels like there's so much music. Do you have to know all the music? I mean, I have decision fatigue, so that sounds really challenging. Like, I don't know. I'd be like, I don't know. I could never make up my mind. Like, do you have to know all music? Do you have to be this music encyclopedia? I think one of the fun things about our job is that you can never know all music. But I appreciate being thrown into projects where I didn't have a base of knowledge about that, and now because I'm thrown into doing something with a certain creator, or now I'm doing something that's based in a certain time period or a certain region, you know, I've worked on movies set in World War II, and suddenly I have to know everything about <laughs> big band music in World War II. I wasn't necessarily listening to that in the car, but now I have more of a knowledge base about it going forward. So that's kind of the, the joy of working on projects that lead you to different places in that respect. Yeah. The, re the research phase is yeah. the best. It really is the best. Yeah. Oh, I, I can imagine, like someone says, we're doing something and you're like, oh my God, this is like brand new. I get to like listen to, like discover all this music. Yeah, you go down a lot of rabbit holes. Oh, that's so cool. Um, well, let's talk about something very spooky that you worked on, uh, the iconic Rob Zombie's Devil's Rejects. Um, what was the specific approach? Still traumatized, by the way. <laughs> 15 years later. <laughs> what, what's the specific approach that you guys took to that process? Um, well, the movie itself was set in 1978, so that already creates a parameter because we were making something that was specific to the time. We were not doing one of those like omniscient things where it's 1978, but we're you know using music from the 90s or something like that. So we were using all 1978 and prior music. 
And the film is set in Texas, where I'm from. Um, so set in Texas, and uh, you know, Rob just wanted to have a like a southern rock, gritty bar band kind of feel to it. And I was listening to the soundtrack on the drive down here. And I was like, oh shit, this is good. I forgot. <laughs> I hadn't watched it in a minute. Um, but just to you know refresh, there was like Almond Brothers band the big scene at the end. How many people have seen that movie? I mean, uh, the big duh. scene at the end you're is iconic, the right and that's that Freebird. <laughs> if you're going to go out in a blaze of glory, I definitely want Freebird to play. Um, there was some like old honky-tonk country. It really ran the gamut, some British rock, but it all kind of rooted back into southern rock, bar band feel, uh, you know, like low down and dirty in that respect. So that's interesting. None of that is spooky. No, not at all. Again, these it, visuals were spooky enough. Right. No, but so that's an interesting question, right? Like, is doing spooky music sometimes for spooky visuals too on the nose? 100%. 100%. Especially when, let's be honest, you're being visually met with gratuitous violence. Right. Yeah, like, I don't, I don't need to underscore a project like that with stuff to tell you it's scary. <laughs> it's already scary. Um... When you, I guess for both of you, there's been like this trend, obviously, um, I, I guess it, it's been so long now, it's not really a trend, but it's still, it's still a trend of people taking popular songs and then making them spooky to work for trailers or for movies. Snore. Yeah, you, like you're over it, right? Yeah. Over it. Trend that should die. Yes. Should have, right. But it's right. been, but, but it, it seems to work though, right? Well, Tastemakers drinking from the same glass. Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, the reason it continues to work is, besides, I agree with your personal opinion, is everyone has a relationship to a music, to a song, right? So if you hear a song, you have a different memory that goes with it. Everyone has a different relationship with that song, and it immediately creates a connection with the audience viewer. That's why it's amazing. We can do some, We can do more. We can do more, you know. You don't need to all do the same thing where it's a rip-off Lord, a rip-off Billie Eilish, a rip-off insert anything that's whatever. Um, there, there's more to it, but it's just, you know, the big drums, the drones, all that stuff. But that's why it's still popular is because yeah. if, you know, you want people to watch your film or your TV show or whatever, it's your advertising. So you want to create immediate connection with the people because now we're on our phones. Like people have what, 30 second, you know, attention spans? It's the familiarity spans. of the song. Yeah, you're going to pay attention being like, oh, I remember that song when I was 16 years old, my friends and I were driving down and this really funny thing happened. And then you're like, whoa, that's kind of different and weird. Yeah, I get that. People, yeah. when, you, when you use covers of any kind, which I don't mean to you know, bash this trend, but it just, when people do a cover well and bring something new to it, that's very exciting. But in general, when you're using a cover of a song that is very, very established or comes from a very specific artist or very, has a, like the song itself is iconic, you're bringing all the baggage of that song and what it means to people to what you're doing, and that's good and bad. So to me, you know, I would love to be judicious about those kinds of covers that are used because it is such a, a go-to thing now, especially in advertising and such, that you know you want to like use the dark cover of Notorious by Duran Duran, which is something I've done. Right. <laughs> Don't judge me. Um, okay, so 
Back to Rob, though, for a sec. So when you're working on something like Devil's Rejects, how involved is Rob in those decisions? Like, uh, he seems like a real personality type. I don't, I don't know him, but I bet, I, I bet he's a riot. That is a word to use. <laughs> Um, but I mean, is he, is he like, so in that soundtrack and that list of songs, is that came from him? Like, I want these songs or this vibe, this style, or is that something where you guys present to him? He's involved, I would assume. Yeah. Oh, from, from the very beginning. Uh, he, he knew that he wanted the blaze of glory to be on free bird because <laughs> you have to. Uh, and then everything else was a little bit of filling in the dots. But, uh, again, within that palette of feeling like honky-tonk bar band, southern rock, the grit of that, the blues of that, the rockabilly aspect of that, and uh, I'm, you know, there's a band that's in the movie, so there was a little element of that, too, um, but, you know, he is very much a person because he has his own aesthetic as an artist, and then also as a creator, that he come, you know, it doesn't necessarily come fully formed, but it comes to you like this is 80% of the idea. Now, how do we make it a reality? Especially whenever we also get to be the fun, like um, Debbie Downer, Negative Nancy about nuts and bolts things. Like, you know, such and such person is not really on board with your vision because it's violent and they're not going to license you your song. You know, or that's too expensive, that person wants too much money. Just logistics that impact the creative process that have nothing to do with just plucking an idea out of the ether and trying to make it happen. That's so interesting. You, do you think that horror as a genre itself has, has more trouble getting people to agree to, to license their music or? Yes. Yeah, because people have like, like I, I love my music being licensed, but not if someone's being tortured. Yes. Got it. <laughs> I, I, I would like to say a different perspective. Well, some people might actually be like, I love my music, but only if people are being tortured. Well, right? <laughs> you know, it, 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 it comes, you don't know till you ask. Yeah. Well, you don't know till you ask. And also, I think, you know, because working with, on the, with artists is uh, how is your art being used within another form of art is having those conversations about what that means. Yes, there's different layers of horror. As a horror fan myself, yeah, there's gratuitous horror where you don't want your music used in torture, but horror is such an amazing storytelling mechanism to talk about social issues, about all those different things. So I think it just depends on the project. You know, uh, what Jordan Peele with his different types of horror things, that's a different type of horror. And I think horror just kind of has a negative connotation that when I work on a project, I don't use the word horror because people just assume there's something wrong with it. So I'll give a description and say, you know, um, you know, I won't say horror, I might say, you know, uh, socially conscious thriller, right? Or I'll just kind of change those little wordings a lot. Like on Deadly Illusions, um, because it is, you know, on the horror thriller, you know, perspective, you know, um, the filmmaker I work with, all of, her, all of her films are horror thrillers that are social commentary on issues that women go through. So that one was about female sexuality. Uh, Deadly Illusions is about female sexuality. It's on Netflix. Um, the new one that we're currently shooting called Blunt, which will probably be out next year, um, is looking at the perspective of following your dream as a woman. And if you're a single mom, people say, you can't do it all. There must be something wrong with you because you are going after your dream. So every film that she makes comes from a different perspective, but it is from the horror thriller lens. 
There's a lot of things that go with it, but it has an intentional thing. So I think it's just about having those conversation with those filmmakers. Don't get me wrong. I love Rob Zombie films, like love them. But getting the music I, in that is very difficult, I'm sure. I didn't get to use any of that fancy description for the things I was trying to peddle to people. I would love to see your scene description. She's hanging yeah. from a meat hook. Yes. And she's wearing someone else's face that they've ripped the other person's face off, and she's wearing it like a mask. You Are you fine with that? I write that out. I don't know if you, how you could that's eloquently real? write that out. Okay, that's it for today. We'll catch you back here tomorrow for 13 Cheap Ways to get more people in your haunt. Today's episode was produced and edited by me, Philip Hernandez, with post-production by David Swope. Support for this episode comes from Gantam Lighting and Controls. See what you're missing with a free demo. Sign up at gantam.com demo. We release a free weekly industry newsletter. Sign up on our website or at the link in our show notes. The Haunted Attraction Network team includes Daryl Plunkey, Emily Luis Rua, Megan Spells, Gavin Burns, and Maximus Bryant. Our partner stations include A Scott in the Dark, Scare Track, The Scare Factor, and Haunt Topic Radio. Finally, please, please, please rate and subscribe to our show wherever you're listening. And until next time, Haunters, stay scary. This is a Haunted Attraction Network production.